Sister Breach McKenna, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And first, I wanted to hear about your current ministry, the work you're doing today. Well, uh, for this last three years, Father, of course, I was like the world. I mm. didn't travel as much because I've traveled for 45 years worldwide in ministry with a Vincentian Irish priest. So he went to heaven in 2018. And uh, when COVID happened, I give some retreats. I do parish ministries and priest retreats. But then when, when everybody was on lockdown, and I knew very little about electronics, but it's amazing what God can teach you in a short time. So I started a ministry on Skype one day, FaceTime the next day, and phones for those who can't use Skype or FaceTime. And in, in a very short time, I was in nine and 10 and 11 countries within three hours praying with people, wow. talking to them. And I, that's when I, I think I mentioned that one day when I was praying, I got the great sense of the Lord saying, you know, the resurrection, people need to know that the victory is won. But the biggest need today is resurrection of the heart, is hope, the despair all over the world. And mm. people would call me, you know, young and old, from all over Canada, uh, over as far away as Korea. You'd be amazed, Papua New Guinea. And all they want was for somebody to talk to them about Jesus and to pray with them. So that's what I did. I did a lot of that, and uh, and I do prayer on the website. And uh, so then I'm back ministering, traveling again. But uh, last July, in place of Kevin, the Lord sent me a, a young a Spanish priest called Father um, Pablo Escriva Romano, I think is the last name. I'm not too sure. But, but anyway, he is wonderful because he's young and full of energy. Mm. And we, we now have given several parish missions. Mm. Uh, we've given several days for priests. And we have now coming up a priest in, in Atlanta. Uh, we, we just finished in South America. We had priests in Costa Rica. We were down in, in um, uh, Peru. And now in the coming months, we have Germany, priests in Germany, priests in England, priests in Ireland, priests in Poland. And then we go to Argentina and Brazil. And what do you tell the priests when you speak to them? And Well, I tell them, Father, first of all, I tell them how great we are. And then mm -hmm. I tell them how great, how better they could be. <laughs> no, I, I, well, you know, I had a wonderful experience like 45 years ago. I had a, a, almost a five and a half hour, I would call it a mystical experience for to give it a word, where it was the time when there was a big crisis beginning in the church and priests were leaving. And it's very easy to be critical because that's exactly what the enemy wants is, you know, to get people negative and gossip and all. And I would never have thought of, you know, really thanking God for the priest sort of thinking about, I just say, you know, people, priests were leaving, get married. And one day I went into the chapel and remember it was after I was physically healed myself and I was in this ministry and I was very disappointed and so many priests leaving. So I went in and I talk out loud to Jesus. I tell people, I don't see a whole, I see the person standing there and I talk to Jesus, he's, he's right there, which he is. And I said to him, Jesus, what's wrong with the priest who they're leaving? And I was given out and all of a sudden stillness came over the chapel. And I heard this inner voice say it to me, and I don't know whether it was from the tabernacle or from inside my soul, saying, what do you mean, what's wrong with my priesthood? Not the priest, my priesthood. Have I ever given a gift that's not perfect? What have you done for those who carry this gift? Mm -hmm. How have you supported them? And then he said, now I'm going to show you the, ordin the ordination from heaven's side. And Father, I saw the most beautiful, for and many hours, of, of the whole, uh, um, what God put in puts into the making of one of his children to share his priesthood with him. And I remember crying and saying, and this is in the early 70s, how could anybody ever say that they, they have a right to the priesthood? Because when you see what it is, mm -hmm. and you see that all heaven bows before, and, and then later God showed me that you know, there was going to be, I saw this whole thing and I remember getting this tremendous reverence for the priesthood and thinking, 
no man could ever claim the priesthood, not even the Pope, nobody. And I said, and what's more? And it was just at the time when, when you know, all the talk about women should have the right to be priests and everything. And it was just at that time, which was very good for me because in the kind of ministry I'm in, because I, I, I draw a lot of people. And I remember the Lord putting it in my heart saying, how, how could you go before Almighty God and say, I have a right to your priesthood? To your, I thought, it's only people with no faith could do. If, if you really believe in the sacrament of holy orders and what it is, then you couldn't possibly reduce it to a job because it's not a job. It's a ministry and nobody has a right to it and only God gives that gift. So after seeing that, and really crying, I was really touched. Then the Lord gave me two prophetic words, uh, um, missions really. And the first was that I saw a desert and I saw people like a desert of dryness and people were looking for the, for the word of God and they couldn't find anybody to minister to them. And the Lord revealed to me that there was going to come a great barrenness in the church in many parts of the world. He would always give the vocation, but like a seed, if it wasn't watered and nurtured, it wouldn't, it wouldn't mature, mm. it wouldn't develop. And the whole thing came to me then, I remember talking to my bishop about, with the whole thing of the contraceptive mentality and people not wanting pre priests, they want grandchildren. And, uh, and I felt the Lord saying, I want you to go into the world and I want you to speak to priests and uh, to families about the priesthood. It's, they are the ones that must nurture the priestly ministry because it's from families that I give my vocation. I, I call them. And so that wasn't hard because I would have 35 and 40,000 in stadiums all over Brazil, all over Latin America, places. And so I, that, I accepted that. But the second was very hard because the second image that I saw was Jesus weeping over a sea of bishops and priests. And he said, a time is coming when many bishops and priests will deny me and will also seek the wisdom of the world and reject the wisdom that comes from me. A time is coming when priests will be ashamed to acknowledge they belong to me. I, I want you to go into the word and I want you to speak to priests and bishops. I will give you an opportunity to remind them that true humility is not denying the, the priestly ministry, but is acknowledging and magnifying me. And I want you to go into the word and encourage, challenge and affirm these vessels. And then I saw, you know, and, and this came to me again recently, I forgot all about it. I saw um, a beautiful, a glass, just like a drinking glass, and a bottle of very exclusive, expensive wine on a table. And saw this hand taking this wine, but the glass was cracked and stains on it. But it poured the wine in, it, it held the wine, it didn't do anything to the wine, but you couldn't see because there were so many things wrong with the glass. And I felt the Lord saying, that's the vessels today. Your mission is to try and re-help them to, to transform the vessel. The priesthood doesn't need renewing. It's my priesthood. But it's the vessel that's holding the priesthood. And the attacks are not, the, they can't attack the priesthood of Jesus, but they're attacking the vessel. They're destroying the, the, the vessel. Mm -hmm. And that's where we judge that we say, I don't like the priest, I don't like this. But actually what we're doing is it's the destruction of the person who, who makes it Jesus present, you know, his priesthood. And so the first priest retreat, when, when that happened to me, I got such a love for the priesthood and I was walking, I was like a mother's heart. I remember it was, I must have been three or four hours in the chapel. And I came out and I thought, how in the name of God will I minister to priests? I'm teaching first grade. And I started in first grade with the <laughs> Holy Childhood. I started praying for priests. Yeah. And... Um, they used to think the parish priest was sick, was Sister Breach praying for the priest. Mm -hmm. And then I got um, Father Harold Cohen, and if you I, remember I Father remember. Harold. Father Harold came into my classroom and he said mass to the kids and he explained to them the difference between their father and him. Was that in New Orleans then? No, no, he came oh. over to Tampa. Okay. Yes, Father Harold is a great friend of mine. Mm -hmm. But anyway, then um, I went to my first priest retreat to Minneapolis. It was Minneapolis. And the priest who brought me, was it Father Cohen? I think it was Father Cohen. Said, oh, Bridge, you'll have to come with me. I said, oh, Father, listen, you're a Jesuit. I'm not going to any retreat with you. I have teaching. I couldn't go. But should I get off school? The principal said, oh, go, Bridge. 
Well, anyway, I go, and it was a nervous wreck. This is my first time ever going to stand. 50 skeptical parish priests were told to be on the retreat by the bishop. It could be a tough group. <laughs> well, the next morning, I'm in bed, a nervous wreck, and the priest comes, the Father Tim, somebody, he later became a bishop, and he knocked at the door and he said, Bridge, are you there? He said, Father Cohen has gone to the hospital. You have to start yourself. I was on my own. Can you imagine, Father? And I never stood in front of a priest. But boy, did I pray. And um, so I, it was amazing what happened because years later I'm in Rome and I meet this bishop and he says to me, Bridge McKenna. He said, I was in the priest retreat in Minneapolis when you gave it. There was Minneapolis. He said, you know, we did something terrible to you. He said, we couldn't figure out how you, I was only in my late 20s, how you knew so much about the priesthood, which I didn't know at all. But anyway, he said, mm. they got three of them were from the, from the canon law offices and, you know, the canon law yeah. and all kinds of degrees. And they decided to put the most difficult questions. And he came in, this father, Tim, he came in to ask me these questions, pretend that it was a crisis, to see what I'd say. And he said, I'll never forget, he said, I went into you and I said, you know, I really want you to give me some advice on this. And he said, you looked at me as if to say, you don't know the answer. <laughs> he said, that was me. And that was like 30 years later. So that's how it started. And um, my bishop, I went to see my bishop. bishop. Let, me, let me ask you real quick about the initial vision in the chapel. You said mm -hmm. that you saw the beauty of Christ's priesthood. Yes. Can you describe that image or what it was? Well, all I remember is the the humility of Christ, the, the sense of Jesus trusting, not angels and not saints. And this is why we it's very hard for us, to, for priests, because I know now I've been working with them all these years, it's very hard for the priest to, to, to fully understand that, that his limitations, his sexuality, his struggles, his temptation, don't interfere, like, it's not a mistake, you know. A lot of priests say to me, you know, when I respond to the priesthood, I get terribly sexually tempted, I get all these struggles, all these things happen to me, and it didn't happen when I was a seminary, you know, before I came into the seminary and everything. And I remember thinking, you know, I remember in the vision of the, 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 the child, there's no such a thing as late vocation. That's one thing I learned that day directly from this vision, is that the vocation on Holy Thursday night Everything is present to God. That's the mystery of God. Everything. So everybody that was going to share the priesthood of Christ was present to him. Now, whether they develop it, respond later or respond early, it didn't come and drop into their minds halfway down the street they're going to decide to be a priest. You know right, what I mean? Right. And I remember thinking, you know, that, that when I saw that, of seeing the, how many unknown attacks of Satan to put obstacles in the way of the developing of the, of, of the seed of the priesthood and how the priest is always the prime target of the enemy. He's the biggest threat to Satan. And isn't that how he's ruined? Isn't that what he went after in the church? Mm. I, Father, I could never, I can't explain what I saw that day, but I remember crying and saying, my God, who would want to be a priest? I mean, when you think, when you think, that the only people God Almighty obeys was his, Jesus obeyed his father, he obeyed his foster father and foster and his mother, and to this very day he obeys you every single day. You mm -hmm. say the words of consecration. The Spirit of God, mm -hmm. that, those words, and Jesus comes. Right. You know, it's, you think about it, whether you're sinful, I, you see, it's very hard to get them across to them in Ireland. And Pope Benedict had, had to deal with this, when all these abuse things happened in Ireland, people wanted to annul their baptisms. They wanted to get annulments for the baptism, mm -hmm. say that because the priest was a sinner, he was a sex abuser. And to try and explain to them that it doesn't matter what the priest did, if he's validly ordained, right. and he stands at that altar. Right. And that's the lack of, I think it's the same with the Eucharist. I think there's a, a, a big ignorance and, and a lack of teaching on the Catholic faith. Right. And it's not hard to leave the church if you don't really understand, right. you know? What is uh, what advice do you usually give to the priest <clears throat> that is struggling or trying to clean that glass to be beautiful? What's like the most common struggle, and how do you address it <clears throat> that you find? Well, first of all, I, I in in the retreats, I don't let them tell me anything, Father, because the kind of ministry I have, 
because I say to them, if I knew everything about you, I could be influenced. So, you know, that's one gift. And it was actually here that I got this uh, confirmation about the word of knowledge for priests. I came here in the late 70s to spend seven days alone at the, um, there's no EWTN then, you know, but mm-hmm. Mother Angelica's monastery. There was just about nine or 10 of them. And while I was here, the Lord called me to a fast. It was the hardest. I've never done a fast like it before because I, I was on water for eight days, nearly killed me. But I, I was called to it. And uh, I remember one of the last days of the retreat, one of the little white veils, whoever was here at the time, came out and she said to me, she gave me this word and she said, you know, you're praying for priests, but God's going to reveal to you what the priests need without you knowing. Mm. You know, so I when at the at the priest retreats that we give and that I give on my own, but now thank God I have Father Pablo to replace Father Kevin. We spend the first day always um, on repentance and there's always talks and, and I always give a talk on celibacy and what it means and what it is and the occasions. And they'll say to me, I never had a woman in my life. I tell a funny story, but out in California, or this is years ago, and I was giving this talk on celibacy and these old boys were there, this fellow, who must have been 80, uh, in his 80s. And he comes out and he says to me, and like he was, the council of Trent hadn't happened to him. But anyway, he says to me, I never sat with female feet in my life and listened to something like that. He said, that was great. He said, first time I ever heard talk like that. He said, could you help me? So I said, what do you want me to do? He says, you know, sister, I'm known as the grump. He said, I never loved anybody in my life. He said, when I was in the seminary, there was 10 stick women put on the board and you were told red lights over their heads. So he said, I spent my whole life looking for the red light. And he said, and... Uh, I, I'm a virgin, he said. I never broke myself, but I never loved anybody. Never couldn't care. He was, he was very honest, you know. He says, I have a housekeeper and she's 82. And he says, I, I was listening to you, sister. I have to show her a bit of love. <laughs> and I started to laugh. I said, Father, she dropped dead if you go home. <laughs> I put a hugger or anything. <laughs> so, but, you know, there's, there's certain things that a woman can say to priests that priests wouldn't say to each other. Right. And I talk about, I tell a lot of stories. I just had a priest retreat for the Boston clergy for 65 of them on my own just before COVID two years ago. And at the end of my the five day, it was great. They came to Florida with the bishop to our retreat house. They had a bet on with Breach run out of stories. <laughs> Didn't win. But uh, I can't tell you, I, I pray a lot. And I beg Jesus to speak through me. And what else can I say? Yeah. But I love the priesthood. I have a great, great, God has given me a great love for the priesthood, Father. And a great, great, because I've ministered all over the world. And like on Holy Thursday, this Holy Thursday, <clears throat> I get a lot of calls from priests, maybe who are having difficult times. But a priest called me, cried and cried. And he had nobody else to talk to. So he called me because of anxiety and depression and all those things. Where do you turn? Like when the Jesuits said to me, one time, he years ago, he said, my provincial sent me to the psychiatrist and he said, I went into that psychiatrist and he says, talk. And I talked for an hour. And he says, that's $90. And he said, I came home and the fellow says, go down there to Breach McKenna. He said, go in there to the tabernacle of Jesus and he doesn't charge you. And he talked to him. <laughs> so I talk a lot about uh, prayer and adoration and, yeah. and what, the sacraments. And, and you remind me too, like, you know, Jesus... You know, to John, he gave the Blessed Mother to be, you know, his mother. And it's a gift to all, to the church. He's mother of the church. But I think, too, in a special way to priests. Yes. And why, and why is that necessary? Like you say, you could say things, and I, I think that's true. You could say things like other priests don't say to one Well, you another. know, I got a beautiful uh, vision one time when I was in Venezuela years ago, giving a priest freedom of my own. And uh, it was a priest got the vision, not me. But it did. It, it was very touching because he was a German. He was a big German guy, and you'd never expect him to come out with what he said to me. He came over to me. There was about maybe 50 of us sitting in a big circle in this room, and I was talking to them. And um, he said to me, you know, he said, Breach, I had a very strange vision after communion today. And he said, I saw you sitting in a circle, like we are. And he said, 
you had the most beautiful big fat baby on your lap. <laughs> so he said, she didn't bring a baby in here. And he said, and all of a sudden you got up and you walked over to the first priest and you put the baby on the priest's lap and the baby didn't want to, oh, and he got all scared and he was letting the baby fall. And I said, take the baby, take the baby. So the baby looked at him and he put his head, he looked at the baby and kissed the baby and the baby melted into him. And he looked at me and you know what he said to me? He said, you know, I tried to ask the Lord. Now, what does that have to do with breed or with us? And he said, the Lord revealed to me that the baby represented the femininity, that our masculinity, that there's, there's part of us not developed enough to be able to just mm -hmm. kiss that little baby, mm -hmm. to take, and that um, th this is where um, the, the, the feminine, my femininity, and my love for them. Like I had an old priest, and I, Jeanette reminded me, I think it's in the book, um, I don't know, it was in Lourdes, or someplace I was given a priest retreat, and this elderly priest was, was very upset. So I put my arms around him, and he started to cry, and he cried and cried. And he looked at me and said, you know, I never had a mother. And he said, this is the first time I've ever felt the love of somebody who loves me like a mother. And he said, you have no idea what this has done. And he was quite elderly. So, you know, there's many ways that you see, get glimpses right. of it, you know. And I, I was telling you earlier, I was, Father Miguel and I went to the close for the year of priests. I think it was 2008 or nine or something. And it was in Rome. And they had their official talks by a cardinal would be a different, or a basilica and address whatever group of priests. And then I think you were preaching, like you were giving a talk on yeah. either Tuesday or Wednesday. And um, and St. John Lateran, you know, this beautiful yeah. major Roman Nature, basilica. Yes. <laughs> and I, I remember that just came through in your talk so much was your love for the priesthood and just how um, powerful it was. And it reminds me of Catherine Doherty. I never met her. I but, met Catherine. Yeah, and I read her book, Dear Priest yes. or something. And I always said I thought it was the best book of the priesthood I've ever read. It's, it's not a technical book at all. No. But you feel like this call and this call to live up to the vocation. And, but she says it from a point of view of love yeah. that's so ministering or nurturing. Or well, something. you know, I spoke at the, uh, you know, that retreat that had uh, the worldwide priest retreat for 6,000. You probably weren't were you there at the time. Mm -hmm. No, Pope John Paul spoke. And uh, um, Mother Teresa spoke and I spoke. And a lady called Babsy Bleasdell, and there were cardinals, and Cantal Mesa was young at the time he spoke, and Cardinal Sin from Manila. But I remember um, the cardinal wrote to me, a cardinal, and asked me to send him my talk uh, one year ahead. One year ahead. And Jackie was working with me, so it was over 35 years, but 34 years ago. And I said, a year ahead, I have to tell him what the Holy Spirit's going to say, I haven't a clue. So I said to Jackie, we'll write to him. So I sat down and I wrote, I said, Your Eminence, I would never be able to tell you, put down every word you're going to say, because they probably wanted to make sure there's right. nothing right. crazy or no feminist crazy <laughs> nonsense. But anyway, I wrote back to him, I said, Your Eminence, I, I don't write, I pray a lot, and if you give me the title, I'll, you know, I'll meditate and I'll have notes, but I can't write a talk. I said, it's not my style. And I said, but if you don't want me, no, I don't feel bad at all, just tell me. Never heard from for about three months. So then I got the letter with all whatever's put. Well, now I go to that, and there's 6,000 priests, and there are 100 bishops and cardinals, and they're all bishops and cardinals. Three, the three of us were, uh, Babsy, I don't know what day she was on, but I was on the same day as Mother Teresa, the two of us that morning. <clears throat> so I'm walking down the audience hall, and I'll tell you, I prayed every day. I, I got myself all ready. And was I nervous? You know, God, and I looked out and saw these fellas all in their black clerics, I'll tell you, all clerics. <laughs> and uh, I'm walking down and I said, yeah, I was nervous for two minutes. Mm -hmm. But the next minute, this bishop comes up to me and he says to me, here, sister, could you inject this into your talk? And he gives me a, a VCR. And I said, what is it? He said, is Pope John Paul being shot? And is Pope John Paul um, meeting, in, with the... meeting the prisoner? Yeah. So I took it and I thought, well, I did it myself. It's a good job I hadn't it all written down. Because where would you insert it? You'd have mm. to be, because the translators, there's 10 of them oh, back there, you right. know. So I did it. And um, after, 
I had finished my talk, was on the priest, a man of forgiveness and a man of reconciliation. And it was some other title. So I said, now, let's look at these. Um, I turn off the lights and we're going to look at the man who lives very close to us here and is very close to us, and he personifies everything I've talked about. And then the stage, the whole back of the audience hall lit up. And it was, it was probably the most... I mean, the highlight of the whole talk, mm. and yet it was just like three minutes, but it, it, right. if I had been preparing, you know. Right. So the bishops all came up to me, and they're saying to me, three of them from Ireland said, oh, Breach, you have to speak in Ireland. I said, speak in Ireland, I'm over there 17 years at the intersection. Where are you? <laughs> so anyway, I said, afterwards, I met Mother Teresa in the back. We were sitting waiting for them to come out, uh, the others who were doing something. And Mother Teresa said to me, she said, you know, Sister Breach, the strength and the grace of your talk is because of your love for the Eucharist of Jesus. Always stay close to him and he will, he will do what you could never do, which is true. Oh, wow. you know? I love adoration. I spent a lot of time in adoration. Right. You know? And your meeting with Catherine Doherty, how did that go? <laughs> we, I went to see Catherine in, uh, with Dr. Joe McKenna, who's a great friend of mine, and Kevin. And we had read Pastinia, you know, in her, her little books. Um, she was a very unique woman, mm. interesting woman, big Russian woman, mm. you know. I don't remember, I remember it was really cold up there and that. Yeah. Kevin went up and made a retreat with her. Okay. But he said it was fierce because it was outdoor toilets and the snow coming down around you and, oh, he said there was <laughs> penance and then you had a scrub wall and everything. But they did all this labor. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <clears throat> but I don't remember too much of what she said to us that day. Remember, she was sitting in the room and she talked to us. Mm. Yeah. But I met a lot of interesting people like that. Right. I met the Empress of Japan. I ministered to the Empress of Japan. Wow. wow. And all the kings and queens and presidents. And I have great stories about one day I was in the Chapel of Adoration in Dublin. Mm -hmm. I was after making a 30-day retreat. And I, the priest I was, had said, Breach, take a few days. The generalate, my own generalate before you, you know, just when you're coming off the retreat. So I was in his adoration, and I hear the Lord saying, <clears throat> the Prime Minister, we call him Thishuk in Ireland, on Thishuk, it's Gaelic for Prime Minister. Uh, the Prime Minister wants to talk to you, but I want to talk to him. And I said, oh God, this 30-day retreat's really going to my head. I don't even know who the Prime Minister of Ireland yeah. is, because I live in America for all these years. But I couldn't get it out of my head, so that morning, one of a girl, that was in your well. She called me, Mona, and I was telling her. I said this strangely. She said, "I'm going to his office right now." Give right, chances. Right. She said, "I'll tell him." Well, I said, "Don't tell him anything because I don't know what, what." That's all I heard. Or she said, "I'll mention you anyway." So that night she called me at ten o'clock and she said, "I told the prime minister Charlie. They all called him, and he said, he stopped me when I said your name. Now, I told her." I was in the chapel and it was a quarter past nine that I heard the Lord saying these words to me. The Prime Minister wants to speak to you, but I want to talk to him. And she said, when she said to him, Sister Breach McKenna, he said, oh, why, Sister Breach McKenna? <clears throat> she said, why are you reacting? He said, you know, at a quarter past nine this morning here in the office, she's the very person. I put my head in the desk and said, Lord, I'd love to get Sister Breach to pray with me. Hmm. Same time. So... I, I said to her, she said, he wants you to go in. He's going to send a car out from the government for building. I said, I'm not going into him tomorrow because I need to pray. So I fasted, prayed the whole day. Because I said, why am I going into him? I haven't a thing to say to the man. But anyway, I got him a New Testament and I, I went in. The and he was car. Catholic? Oh, yes, okay. very Catholic. Okay. Catholic, you know, the Catholic politicians are like. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I went in <clears throat> and I threw all the others out because I couldn't speak English, you see. Mm -hmm. And other presidents, you have to go through an interpreter. But this fella, I could speak in English to him. He was Irish. So I remember him saying to me, Sister, I am puzzled. How did you know? I remember saying to him, Thishuk, do you believe in the resurrection? He said, of course I do. I said, well, Jesus heard you. And I was with him at the same time. <laughs> and he told me about you. <laughs> he, said, he thought the place was bugged. <clears throat> but those kind of things, you know, Father Mark, make it very... People look at me, and Kevin used to say to me, you know, Breach, people listen to you, they think, can it be possible? He said, only I work with you, I know these things happen. But I tell them, Jesus is short of help. 
you need some idiot like me to do it. <laughs> right, right. To risk, because you have to risk. Right. And what do, what do you think, like, generally, like, the priest you work with, do you feel like you have to remind them of something about the priesthood? Or, you know, I was just offering a Mass for you and your traveling companions. And I, you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking, you know, I, th I feel like oftentimes we lose sight of kind of the simplicity of like just offering the mass. I mean, you guys desperately wanted to come to mass, right? And I thought, yes. you know, and I just offered mass and just how great or important that is. You know, but I think we lose sight of just... Yeah, the well, I think one of my main ministries is affirming and encouraging priests and reminding them of, of the awesomeness of the priesthood. And, and that's what a lot of priests would say after the preach, this has been shot in the arm because we get so much negativity and mm. we, are, we are beaten so much with the things that are wrong in the priesthood that we fail to see the beauty of the priesthood and we fail to see that Jesus' words, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So it's not right. a mistake. And right. I, I always tell the priests, I say, you know, I've never, very rarely have I met a man who did not begin the priesthood, rarely, there have been mistakes, rarely, who, who didn't start the priesthood well, but through lack of prayer, through, um, you know, um, becoming, becoming distracted with social work instead of the priestly work, that you can lose your way. It's like I tell them, your GPS has to be refocused mm. on heaven and what your ministry is. Mm. And see, that's why I tell them all, even though, I'm looking at these bishops and I'm telling them they're often there at things that I speak of. I tell them, you were not ordained for global warming and Mother Earth. <laughs> There's governments doing that. You were ordained for the salvation of souls and people are waiting to hear the gospel. Yeah. And see, that's the, that's the big distraction of Satan. They're good things, but they're not the things that a priest. For, for, for us to be spending hours talking about ways, like my order does the same. They send us all these things about what to do with it garbage and what to do with this and what yeah. to do with that. I think yourself, and the people are lying in the hospital dying to hear about Jesus. Yeah. And we're more worried about taking care of Mother Earth. Right. Waste of time. Right. What do you tell them about prayer, like to help help them to pray better? Well, I first of all, Father, I tell them, the first thing you have to do is you have to ask for the gift of prayer, but you don't be going into the chapel and saying nice things to Jesus. He's he feels wonderful. He doesn't need you to be making him feel good. <laughs> I tell him, tell him when you're mad. Talk to him. He's a person. Yeah. And, and I love scripture. I think, you know, that the scripture inspires you. Even if you don't think you're getting inspired. The, the, the word of God is like when, it's like when people look at pornography or read pornography, that's what they put into their soul and it destroys them. When people read the Word of God, because it's anointed, and that's why there's a big attack against the Word of God. I mean, yesterday I was reading where these people want to change the teachings of the Bible to suit the times and all this. The Word of God is really the greatest gift that we receive through the Holy Spirit, because it does open the face of Jesus. It does give you graces flow through. And so I love the readings. I also... You know, for religious, I talk to them about, and to the priest, about the office of readings, the breviary. You know, Father Matt, the breviary is like a springboard. It helps you to pray, the Psalms and the, the office of readings. And I remember a priest in uh, Ireland. He was, um, he's dead now, Lord of mercy. But he broke his back. He was a teacher in Rome with the, with the Rosminians, and he had a terrible mm -hmm. accident. And he broke his back. And uh, he was flown back to Ireland. He was paralyzed. And one night in a hospital in Galway, he was lying there waiting and he asked the matron for, for painkillers because he was, he was in an awful state. And while she was waking the painkillers, his briefly was sitting on the table and he said, oh, I can't pray that briefly. I can't. I'm in such agony. And he heard a voice say to him, I prayed in the agony of the garden pick it up and pray with me, the Psalms. And the first Psalm of the second Thursday, I think it is, I called upon the Lord and he healed me. Mm. He was miraculously healed. Wow. And he, I met him in Venezuela when I was given the priest retreat. And I got him up to give a talk in the divine office. He was brilliant. And he, he was telling the priest, he said, you know, 
you know, the old priest used to call it their wife, mm. really the wife. Mm. But he was saying how even if you just take one line from the briefly and use it as a mantra for the mm. day, or he said if you go into it looking at it not as a chore, you say, but to pray it. And I use the Office of Readings, you know, yeah. I, I read the Office of Readings every day and I read the briefly. Um, but I tell people, you know, the most powerful and effective way is Eucharistic adoration for, for, for ordinary people because it's like sitting in the sun. You, if I go out and sit in that sun for an hour, I'll come in and raise a beetroot, but I didn't do anything. I just sat. But think, the only thing you have to do with Jesus is be motivated to go in and sit with him because he's there looking at you with such love. He died for you. <clears throat> I tell them, and you will pray. You, you, if you make the decision and sit with the Lord, you could be dry as anything. But that's what King Budwin used to say. You know, King Budwin, when he abdicated the throne that time, you know, 1993 because of abortion. I remember I knew him very well. And he, he was the one that told me. He said, you know, I sunbathe every day with Jesus. Hmm. And when it came to signing abortion, he wouldn't do it. And he said, I meet the King of Kings every day. He said, how could I possibly all of a sudden tell him, well, what you said was wrong and I'm going to sign for abortion. And he abdicated. But he gave great teachings. He talked about the power of sitting with Jesus in the Eucharist. So I talk to people a lot about adoration. But, yeah. you know, I, I can't tell you exactly all I say. I remember. <laughs> in your own story, uh, you grew up in Northern Ireland. For the short time, 13, maybe left home. <laughs> How many brothers and sisters? I have four brothers, two dead and two alive. One total doesn't practice anything, I don't think. Yeah. I'm praying for him. And the other's uh, living in the home place. And you all were at a, on a farm? Or? Yes, I grew up on a, a small farm, small Irish farm. Mm. And my father, my mother died on Christmas Day when I was 12, mm. 13. And that's when I got my vocation. I went to the convent. Nobody pushed me, nobody asked me. I heard the Lord on the night of Christmas night. I thought it was my mother telling me. She died very suddenly. We were at midnight mass, and she we came up midnight mass, and she was in a coma. She got a cerebral hemorrhage and was rushed to the house. Died at quarter two on Christmas Day, and the youngest was eight, and the oldest was I don't know eighteen or whatever. And my father was really heartbroken. But anyway, um, I went back to school, and it was that voice that said to me, "Don't worry, I'll take care of you." I woke up saying, "I'm going to be a nun." Nobody mm. believed it, of course. My first cousin was with me that night. I went to my aunt's house. Because in those days, we used to have big Irish wakes, you know, mm. clay pipes and mm. whiskey and the singing and everything. <laughs> and in one way, it was tradition. But in one way, it was it was to help the family. But sure, they came for, as they say in Ireland, for the feed. They came, they got fed and everything. Right. Huge, big celebration for the dead. Right. Right. But that's all gone now. Yeah. And then they had the Jew, the collection went to church and you paid you went up to the casket and you put your money in you do this the, yeah. you do this in the church and yeah. the we altar boy come run down and say george mckenna five pounds and they go up to the fella and he'd say george mckenna five pounds for mrs murphy <laughs> <laughs> and so you're you grew up in a devout so I grew up in a farm as a devout home was it yes we said the rosary and uh, well you see in those days father it was different because the church was very into one everything was interwoven with family life and novenas and go to May mm -hmm. devotions and the the redemptors came put the fear of hell in you because they were <laughs> they were telling them about murders and drunks and, <laughs> and did y'all did y'all ever speak gaelic up there no we don't know we were on britain down okay <laughs> no i didn't speak i was in northern ireland and i learned irish but you learned as a kid just to, we weren't allowed to, to to do anything gaelic because of the north you know and but you were I close to, to your brothers you said you no, were no i'm not as close to my brothers but um, when you were growing up you were like a tomboy you said? oh yes yeah, yeah. oh she yeah they used me to play football and all those other things and <laughs> stole a donkey out of a field with them <laughs> you named we did and then i i ran away i ran away with my brother and and wouldn't come home because my you know when you think when i have memories father put this in the ipod and think what are iris like <laughs> I, I remember my, my um, we took some kind of spirits, like jays, something, I don't know what it was, but we drank it. We did something that nearly killed us. And we ran away, I don't know what trouble we got in. Myself and this brother of mine that was closest to me died, he was a saint. 
he was he he had a mystical experience with Saint Faustina. Never told him about her, but she must mm. have come to him. He was completely priest said your brother was a mystic, and you wouldn't think he could put two words together. He was a wee farmer out in the country, died a beautiful death. Mm. He had two two and a half thousand at his funeral, mm. but he was a, he was a storyteller like me. Mm. But his stories, I don't know they're half true or not. <laughs> but anyway, um, but he, uh, when when he, he and I were children, and I remember leaving and going to sit in the cornfield. We're scared stiff because my mother told me there was a big woman going to come and she'd take us away because we weren't behaving. Can you imagine psychology? <laughs> so we, we left and my father was out looking for us. So do you know what he told us? He came to my uncle's house. We were sitting, my uncle, he was ancient, and sitting in the hobs, in the open fire. And we said, we can't go home because the big woman, we saw the big woman coming and she was the, she was the midwife coming. My mother was expecting the last child. We thought it was this big woman coming. That's all we heard was a big woman was coming. Mm. So my father said, no, she's dead. I killed her with a sledgehammer. <laughs> <laughs> we're all talking about all these stories and memories. I think to myself, what we were told as kids. <laughs> but anyway, I had a happy childhood for when I had it. You know, my mm-hmm. parents, at least they, they were together and the prayed together, we said the rosary, and we all walked three miles to Mass, wow. three and a half miles, and three miles to school every day, rain, hail, or mm. snow. Didn't have a car. Not at all. Yeah. Listen, tell the first television that came, my uncle went to the neighbours, and he dressed up and polished his whiskers, put his top hat on, hat on and top coat and everything, and went off. you think he was going to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> he was going to see television. <laughs> the, the radio with pictures, he called it. There's a new radio with pictures over in that house. And would you burn like the peat bog or? Yeah, no. Or... Uh, where I was, we didn't have peat, but in, the, oh. in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, the peat. But yes, oh. but we had turf. We had open fires, mm. and we were a bit more modern. We I mean we didn't have, we didn't have running water. We had a, we had a pump. Mm. We had a pump. Yeah. So you joined at fourteen and a half. Right? I joined it. I went to the convent to see the Mother General when I was just 14 and she told me to come back later. So I went back two weeks later, mm. two weeks, to make up her mind. And uh, she took me in at six months before. So I was 14 and a half and I stayed in the convent. I think they were taking me in to see was I for real, you know. I had a whale at a time, so I didn't bother me. My dad gave me permission. And on the 15th, my 15th birthday, they dressed me in the posthumous outfit, like old mother Hubbard, you know, a wee bow under mm. your chin and a big mm. long dress and all. And, uh, then I made my, I was given away as a bride, a gorgeous wedding gown and a guard of honour, my, all my classmates, because I was still at school. And uh, that's when the nuns used to get all their hair cut off. And I left, um, then I got professed at 16, very young. And at Canon that, law didn't worry our mother general. <laughs> and at that, you, they also had a dowry at that time? Yes, we had to bring in a dowry. My yeah. father... Was that, I, I, that's the only thing I had to ask my father was he said to me what do I need and I said I need a dowry did he have trouble coming up with that no or? not really yeah. I don't know where he got maybe he stole it <laughs> <laughs> he, he must have given it ah, but they, okay. they never had to use it because I didn't leave because that's what it was for if you left oh I see. and they never put in the bank because they didn't trust the bank put okay. the big suitcases under the beds <laughs> so you, you wound up getting arthritis, so... Then you... when I was 17, I got my appendix out and it was then that the arthritis flared. It must have been in my system. And uh, I started getting very bad feet and I was taken to to hospital, big orthopedic hospital in Belfast. And they kept me there for two months and put me into casts and realized that it was an onset of rheumatoid arthritis. as a young girl, 17. And um, then I came back to the mother house and for two years I wore casts at the mother house every night. Mm. And uh, it was the time uh, when I was in the hospital. A lot of students were would have gone to high school with me or that, and they were. It was the the song that was out was these boots are made for walking. That's what they're going to do. Mm. But my boots had no heels. I mm. I was totally unable to walk. Mm. So then I came back, and for two years I had the plaster pair or something, and then um, I got. I was told I wouldn't be fine. Profess- I wouldn't have been professed. Uh, at all, I wouldn't even accept the order. I had not made my first vows, mm. so that's why God got me in early. Mm. And when you think of it, I grew up in the convent because I was there, so yeah, so young. Mm. And then I, um, 
America opened in 65. An Irish priest went over to, from Florida and they were desperate for nuns because that time was a mission, you know, they were mm-hmm. supplying priests and nuns. And um, so we weren't really a missionary order, and, but they sent five nuns to Florida to teach in school. And then they were looking for more and nobody would go. You didn't have to go because it wasn't, you could volunteer. Mm-hmm. So this nun met me, she's mother superior. And she said, oh, Bridge, oh, it'd be a wonderful place for art prices. Oh, you'd be wonderful in it. And she gave me this whole rigmarole <laughs> and told me about how wonderful it'd be. And off I go and volunteered and I was accepted the next day to go. So in September, when I got my visa and everything, I arrived in Florida. And I arrived in Tampa Airport, all in the old habit. I got off the plane. I thought, this has to be hell. I never was in such a place in my life. The heat was my first time in an airplane. And uh, I, I was given five shillings, which was the equivalent of about $5 today, to bring the change home. <laughs> Can you imagine? Times have changed. <laughs> now, had you, you been healed already? Not at all. No. I was in. The, I was coming to Florida for the sun and the sky to heal me. Oh, okay. not Jesus! Okay. I told you know. I said, you know, I would say to people, you know, I didn't really come to Florida because I loved Jesus. I came to Florida for the sun. <laughs> I said, but God brought me here, and so I got worse. I got really bad, oh. and then then I I got healed in nineteen. Oh, they're back. <laughs> no, it's all right. She's on a podcast. Uh, yeah, we're still recording, but yeah. Sure, sure. <laughs> no, no, I can cut that out. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so so then in when when I was told it's going to be in a wheelchair, you know, it's getting worse. The arthritis, humidity in Florida, no air conditioning, and fifty-six first graders Did- crawling around. Well, when you were in the cast in Ireland and all that, did you grow spiritually during Not that? Not <laughs> I mean, was it like time of suffering and all that? No, at all, Father. I was so young. I enjoyed <laughs> life. I loved people. I loved the convent. I, nothing. I questioned nothing. I, <laughs> you know, you can go in remote control. Right. Where you, you, where you just do things because that's your life. Yeah. Right. And I grew up with it, you know. Mm-hmm. But then a conversion has to come. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing, is that I thank God I came to America. Because now I was happy in the convent. I loved it. And I, I didn't mind long prayers and all of that, you know. And it didn't mean a lot to me. I prayed. And I loved Jesus as much as I could because I was brought up in a Catholic. There was much difference in boarding school and the convent, you know. But then when I came to America and I started, all these priests and nuns started leaving. And they were really good people. And I started thinking, you know, people would meet me and, I was in my 22, 21, 22. He said, oh, sister, you must really love Jesus a lot to give up so much. I'd be looking at him thinking, don't love him that much. Don't get all excited. (laughs) (laughs) And then as people started leaving and the Vatican Council was being implemented, you know, and people were dissenting and all kinds of humanity. Then I started to say to myself, you know, why are they leaving? It could happen to me. And... And then I found myself, um, somebody asked me, would I go to a prayer meeting? And I thought, oh no, only, in Northern Ireland, only Protestants go to prayer meetings, Catholics <laughs> go to Mass. Mm. But I went with this nun, Sister Anne, and I think that was the, the first moment that I heard all these lay people, because we always prayed out of prayer books. Nobody ever made up a prayer in the convent to be looking at you. You just said your office and the rosary and all the prayers that the nuns had written down for centuries. But when um, I I went to the prayer meeting, and I didn't want to go back because I thought, oh, that's not my style. But something kept drawing me back. So eventually I realized either they, these people have something that I don't have or I have something that I'm not using. And it was like, you know how if you come close to a fire, you start getting warmer and warmer. I, it was, there was something happening in my spirit and I started thinking, you know, I, I don't really know if I love Jesus. Do I really believe that he's a living person? And I started, and it was a crisis, but it was a good crisis. Because I tell priests all the time, listen, Father, not all crises are bad. Even the crisis in the church is horrible. But God had to lift the veil because it's far better to have a holy priesthood than have a whole lot of 
things going on that it's, it's mm. double life and living in it. Right. Sometimes God has to use severe ways to get us to where he wants us, not because he wants to humiliate us publicly. We do it to ourselves, but he's using it to get us mm -hmm. into it. So anyway, I all this time I started thinking, no, there has to be more. So I made a decision, and I tell you, it was the best decision. I went on a retreat to Orlando. Now, I knew I'd been going to the doctor three times a week, and I had gout. I had awful pain, swollen knees. My feet were sore. And I remember going on the retreat, and I was born on Pentecost Sunday. That's mm -hmm. my feast day. I came into the world on Pentecost. And remember, it was over the Pentecost weekend, I think. But I went anyway. Notice December. And... Uh, I went to the retreat and Ed O'Connor from Notre Dame was giving it, Holy Cross Father. And I remember he gave the best explanation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that I understood. And he told us all, you know, he said, you know, we're all Catholics in this room. We all have received baptism. It's not, when you talk about baptism of the Spirit, he said, I'll describe it to you. He said, if you were given a birthday gift, and the birthday gift has beautiful ribbons and bows and everything. And he said, if you sit looking at it and admiring it and say, oh, wonderful, and look at that beauty, he said, but that's only the wrappings. It's what's in it is what you're meant to use. So he said, you know, we Catholics often talk about how wonderful the sacraments are. But he said, we don't really allow them to take root and to act powerfully in our lives because it's Jesus you're meeting mm -hmm. and what you need what the Holy Spirit will do through the Spatman Spirit is what happened at Pentecost he's not going to give you something new he's going to just open your eyes to everything that's already there and renew you in it so he said pray for that he said because the Spirit makes all things new so I was sitting in the front row and that's when I said this is what I want I don't want healing. I didn't even ask for physical healing. I said, I could be a saint in a wheelchair, but I can't be a saint if, I, if I'm if i just going on remote control all the time and just doing the things you do as none does, you know. And at that moment, I said, Jesus, I don't, I want nothing more than to know you, to love you. And I remember thinking, this is like, up until that, it's like, you know, a girl walking down the aisle of the church with some man, and she's married and she's thinking, I don't even love the guy. She's not in love with him. She's just acting. And that's what I felt. I, I talked about Jesus in my own way, but he wasn't a person to me. I didn't know him in a person where I love him. I wasn't full of zeal. And that's what I prayed for. And that's what I tell people when I'm giving retreats. I say, you know, fathers and people, brothers and sisters, there's many things not God's will. I mean, I get asked for all kinds of stuff for God. You know, win the lotto, the horse racing, this, that, and the other. I don't know this God's will to win. But there's one thing I can tell you, that it is God's will that we know his son, Jesus. The father said, and he said, what, does the, what am I to do to do the works of God? What does it say about the son mm. whom the father has sent? Right. So I prayed that morning. And at a quarter, to, I think it was about a quarter to nine, I remember looking, it was just before Mass was starting, and the priest was saying this prayer. And I said, Jesus, oh, please come to me. Please reveal yourself to me. And that moment, a hand just touched my head. And I thought the priest was there, opened my eyes, and been healed. The pain, mm. everything left, the sores in my elbows. Mm. But inside, I fell in love with a person. And this is why, Father, it's great. Because when you, no matter, I keep saying, when I see the crisis now in the church, you know, all the stuff that's going on, the Vatican, all these splits with bishops, and I think, I can understand how people walk away when they're committed to a church. But we're not committed to, a, the church is the body of Christ. We're committed to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And automatically, you can't love Jesus, not love the church. Mm -hmm. And you can't love the church, not love Jesus, if it's mm -hmm. really authentic. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening in the church shouldn't give us a faith crisis, because Jesus hasn't changed. You know? right, right. And so that day I got the most wonderful uh, uh, gift of love for Jesus and, and zeal. And of course, like a fire, you have to keep putting coal. But I, that's the time I made, a, I made a big commitment that I would never, that I would do my best to spend at least one to two to three hours in prayer daily. 
And I've, I've, I'd say I've kept most two hours, sometimes more. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, what gives me, you know, the strength. You don't always get it, but most times. And uh, after that, I went to the doctor and it was all gone. But since that time, I've had brain surgery. You know, I had, <laughs> I had all kinds. Of, but Jesus told me when, when um, I had a wink. I tell the story, it's a great story. I got a wink in my eye. And here I was winking at all the priests. Couldn't do a thing. <laughs> and I was in Germany. And I got a hundred and something priests. And I'm winking at them all. <laughs> and for 10 years, I prayed. People laid hands on me. It would go away, come back. I thought, oh, I'm not healed at all. Go away, come back. Ask the doctor. Too much caffeine. Maybe it's a you know, tremor or a nerve in the family. And one day after being in Germany, it's only about seven, eight years ago, I got fed up with the eye. So I went into the chapel and I went up to the tabernacle, opened the tabernacle, the doors. I said, now Jesus, I'm fed up with the eye. And I made three requests. Just like this, I said, now, Jesus, if you heal my feet, I mean, an eye is not hard to heal. <laughs> Come on, couldn't you please heal the eye? It's bothering me. Mm-hmm. If that's not your will, then at least give me a doctor. There must be some doctor in this planet that knows what's wrong with my eye. Mm-hmm. And if that's not your will, then you have to give me supernatural grace to offer it up because you need it because, you know, it's on your face. I said, Jesus, that's all I'm asking you. And what did I hear? Go see a neurologist. Huh. So I get up, I go out and I meet one of the nuns, and they're used to me. And she's, I said, I must go look up a neurologist. And she said, who told you that? I said, Jesus, have to tell me. <laughs> so anyway, the next day I met with one of the students, former students who's a doctor. I was having dinner with her and her, her mother and father. They were doctors. And the wife knew me very well. So people don't make remarks about something if you have something on your face. But she's... Eve was her name, and she's very English. And she's, oh, Sister Bridge, what's wrong with your eye? And I said, well, whatever's wrong, I'm going to see a neurologist. And I was telling them I was going to look at the yellow page. And the doctor said, no, no, Sister Bridge, I'll get you a neurologist. So I went to see this neurologist, and I walked in. She said to me, I think I know what's wrong with you. I said, can you fix me? Can you do something for me? Well, she said, we have to take MRI and an MRA. So it went... Mm-hmm. She said, come back in two days. So when I go back in two days, I love this part of the story. I go back in two days, she says to me, are you a doctor? I said, no. Why do you ask me, am I a doctor? She said, come on, you know something about medicine. I said, I don't know a thing about it. I was a first grade teacher. She said, you must. I said, why would you ask me that? She said, how would you know to come to me, a neurologist? And I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, well, I tell her now. So I said, well, actually, Jesus told me to come to see you. And she jumps off the chair and she starts doing a dance. And she says, does Jesus know me? I said, I hope he knows you. You're in trouble if he doesn't. So she said, well, she said it's amazing. Because she said, you know, the problem is inside your brain. And then she describes it, a word this like, my um, a blood vessel and a nerve fused. And blood vessel kept pulsating. Mm, and, mm. It gave, and she said, loads of people are going around with that and think it's neuralgia. They don't know what it is. Mm. And nobody ever investigates. But she said, the very fact that you came to me, she said, we can do something for you. So she said, there's two cures. And now Kevin, Father Kevin, and Jack are waiting outside for me. So she said to me, I said, well, what are the cure? What's the temporary cures to me? She said, Botox. Oh, I said, God, am I going to Botox? That's what women get to froze their faces and everything. I said, the Mother General would never agree. I said, $3,000 a month. Yeah. I said, what's the other? She said, brain surgery. So I said, I'll have the brain surgery. Mm. So, you know, Father, I went into Shan's Hospital in Florida and I had like, I don't know, five hours. They cut a big bone out of my head, went into the brain, cut into the brain, and they told me all the things that can happen to me. And it was as if they were talking to another person about somebody else never faced me. I mean, I look back and I think to myself, it's extraordinary. Mm. It had to be divine grace. And and they split them and they put titanium around the nerve. Mm. So the nerve is, I have titanium in the head. <laughs> so then I came out after long hours in and the square on the ceiling, like that. And I'm, she said to me, what's your name? And, you know, to see if you're all coherent, mm. if you understand. And I'm looking at the ceiling, I'm thinking, I said to her, I know who I am. But I said, is that really written up there as am I seeing things? And she said, what's written? Miracles do happen, just believe. The title of my book, in all the hospitals that put me in the ward, where this was painted five years oh, before, wow. was the title wow. of my own book. Wow. And uh, 
I was home in three days. So right. I tell people, it would have been cheaper to get a miracle. I tell you, it's not thousands of dollars mm-hmm. it cost me. But um, God used the doctor. So I often, I speak to doctors and I often tell that when I'm preaching. I tell them, I said, don't ever deny the medical profession because God gives us gifts through the doctors too. And the same with medicine. Mm. There you are, Father, even up for 20 years. <laughs> well, let me. We'll, we'll close with this yeah. one. You're talking about prayer, and it's important. Yeah, adoration yeah. and scripture, but it's important too to get real with him and saying, "Oh, to talk to Jesus, yeah. to listen to him." Yeah, yeah. Um, I love to praise Jesus. I I do a lot of, um, you know, even in the car, I tell him I love him by praising, adoring, and worshiping, and. Uh, I pray in tongues, which is one of the gifts that St. Francis had, mm-hmm. your own family, mine. And, uh, but I, I think, you know, uh, people, when, when they're very depressed or when they're angry or that, instead of going in and talking to Jesus, like, you know, you go in and ponder it, but just tell him how mad you are. I talked to a, a dentist one time, or yeah, I think it was a dentist, and his little boy was dying. And he, he went down to the chapel and he was really reading the royal act of Jesus about his only child. And he felt terrible afterwards. And he met me. And he said, I, I probably should apologize to Jesus. I said, you know, but you see, that's the sad part. We treat Jesus as if we can only tell him nice things. I said, you know, Jesus loves us to be real to him. Because where else can you go to talk to? Mm-hmm. The person who loves you most and has the answers. Mm-hmm. I said, so, you know, we'll see, I'm blessed. Well, you're blessed. You live in a, you have the blessed sacrament. I go into the chapel. And I'm on my own a lot because I was out working. But I'm home, and then I have a chapel, a beautiful chapel, an adoration chapel in my office. And uh, I sit there and I, I talk away to the Lord, praise Him. But I tell people, you have to find a way, but don't, first of all, get to the point where you realize you're not speaking to a void. There's a living person in that tabernacle who, who has every faculty that when he walked the earth, except he's resurrected, and it's a mystery to us. But, you know, I sent out a thing the other day about the bishop. I don't know if you read that, where the bishop was um, over in Europe, I think, was consecrating the host, and the host started to bleed. Mm. And he went pure white, and all the people are looking at the bishop, and what's happening to him? So he held it, and he showed it to them, and then he consumed it. But he, he, he said, you know, when you, when you hear that, we see some people that would be a great sign but others we don't need, it, it, it strengthens your faith. But they used to say that oftentimes these miracles happen because many priests didn't believe or they went through doubts, you know? Right. But I was thinking how important it is to keep telling yourself that Jesus is alive. Right. We have to convince ourselves because that's we live in a world that is trying to convince us these things don't exist right. because you can't touch them and see them and you have to be able to concretely prove everything. And that's where our faith comes in. That's where prayer, divine faith and human faith are clashing. Yeah. And human faith is what I read about you in the newspaper and whether it's true or false, I believe it. Um, divine faith is where uh, when, I, when I spend time with Jesus, I get faith to believe in something that's more real than that. Thing, you know? And that's where the lack of prayer, you can't have faith without prayer. You can't have a prayer life. If you don't go in and sit down and the last thing i'll tell you i think there's a beautiful story father i i heard um there was a, a a priest who told the story of how he was going on his hospital rounds in one of the local hospitals in florida or someplace and uh, he went in one day to he was told this person's catholic he went in and there's an old man there, and uh, maybe you've heard the story, it's probably been repeated. But um, the man said to him, oh, he said, Father, it's nice of you to come visit me. And, and he said, well, how are you doing? He said, well, I just sent the doctor in, and I'm going to die very soon. I have, I have whatever disease. And he said, but I'm very happy. And he was very touched by the man, because the man, when other people would be in a crisis, you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, Father, he said, you know, I have to tell you that a priest helped me greatly when I was young. He said, you know, I, I was with a lot of young people one time, and he said, I was a youngster myself, but the priest was giving us talks and was telling us we have to pray. He said, I couldn't pray. He said, it didn't make sense to me. I just couldn't pray. 
So he said, the priest said to me one day, John, I'll give you some aids, you know, to pray. He said, get an empty chair. Have you heard this? Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful story. He said, get an empty chair. Put the chair in your room where you are, which is your little part where you sleep or whatever. And he said, every day, imagine a person. Imagine, you see a human being. Imagine a person sitting in that chair. And just tell him about your day. Talk to him in the morning and talk to him in the evening. And he said, and see it as Jesus. Because you have to make the person read. You can't, you, you can't just go in and pray. You have to have your focus on a person. Since he didn't have the blessed sacrament. So that he told the priest, he said, you know, Father, I started doing that because I was so desperate. I wanted to have a relationship with God. So every day, he said, before I'd go out, he said, I was working a laborer's job. He said, I would go over to the chair, beside the chair, and I'd talk to Jesus as I knew him from the Bible. And I would tell him things. At night, I'd come home. And I met an old priest in Alaska, way up at the Arctic Circle, who did the same out at the Eskimos. He used to sit with Jesus in the chair there. <laughs> well, anyway, so he said, he tells the priest all this, and the priest was really talking. So he said, you know, I'm not afraid, he said, because... I know one day I'm really going to see him sitting on the chair. Mm. So the priest left and he blessed him, gave him all whatever. And about a week later, he was in the hospital and he was going, wasn't really going to him, but he was going around and he saw this woman, young woman crying her heart out. And he said to her, can I help you? And she said to him, well, she said, you know, I, went, I was in visiting my dad. And she said, I went down to get some lunch. And she said, when I came back in that short time, my dad was out of the bed on his knees with his head on an empty chair. Mm. And she never knew her father's story. So wow. father said, he was on the chair. said, yeah. She said, we never could understand because my dad always asked to have a chair in his room wow. with nobody on it. Mm. And uh, when he died, he died with his head on the chair. Wow. And the father said, the priest said, I told her, he went to Jesus, the mm -hmm. way Jesus came.